What if this is real life? Uh, That is the beginning of the conversation that we're going to have over the next few weeks. I think many of us, as we think about an opportunity like Messenger, wonder, what's the point? This isn't real life, right? You're going to send me to Cambodia or Vietnam, someplace that I'm not probably going to live at any other point in my life. How is this, how is this actually going to make an impact in my life? And over the next four weeks, on uh, each Tuesday, what we're going to do is, is um, dive in deep into particular experiences that are super common for our messengers, that happen to also be super common experiences for us, and to learn how to live our real life in Jesus Christ in these certain um, uh, spaces and experiences in our life. What I love about Messenger in these moments is that Messenger gives us a concentrated opportunity to dive really deep. And so uh, these talks on Tuesday, in some ways, will be sort of intros into these different areas that will inevitably be a part of our experience if we decide to follow Jesus with our lives. So here's the situation. You're just trying to make some good choices in your life. You're staying in your lane, and you're just trying to do right things as a Christian, if you are a Christian. So you sign up for something like Messenger. You know, you're going to go make a great impact in the world. Or you sign up for a core group because you're like, I want to be a part of a community and I want to grow in my faith and make some good friends. Or you decide to room with um, some people because they seem like they're pretty chill and like they have their stuff together. Or you decide you're going to get involved in some church community and serve in some sort of situation. And then the wet blanket. Some other Christians also happen to be a part of those experiences, and they totally suck. They're close-minded, they're critical, they're clicky, and they are downright the most insufferable people that you've ever met. Has anyone had this, this happen before in their life? Our friends tonight shared a little bit about that. Man, you know what? And if Christians suck, move on. Like, who needs them? Disappointing people are disposable. Disappointing people are disposable, right? Life is too short for you and I to be bogged down by people that are going to hold us back from our own experience and how good it ought to be and the important things that we're doing. And candidly, candidly, if Christians do not know better, really we shouldn't wait for them, right? I mean, we have important things to do. We are following Jesus and changing the world. And what's the point of us wasting our emotional, spiritual, relational bandwidth on people that are really difficult, that claim to follow Jesus? Who needs them, right? So we dispose of them. And this is what many Christians actually believe based on the way that we live, including myself. The disappointing people, specifically disappointing Christians are disposable. And this is problematic. This ethic that disappointing people are disposable is a conventional ethic. This is the way that the world works, right? And we have all experienced this because we've disappointed people before and have become disposable in our normal social networks. Disappointing people as disposable is not Jesus' wisdom. It's conventional worldly wisdom. It's not Jesus' wisdom. Paul, uh, one of the most important authors, and now a document we call the Bible, 
wrote a letter to a group of Christians in a town called Ephesus who were trying to figure out how to live as followers of Jesus. And I would say that especially the first century uh, followers of Jesus, Christians, had the hardest time reconciling how difficult it was to get along with people that they were trained to hate because of their social status, their religious status, their gender, and all sorts of things. You and I live in a, we live in a polarized world, but it is impossible for us to imagine how polarized it was in the first century. And so Paul writes this incredible letter, and the main theme of this letter is unity. And in chapter 4, now we, it's chapter 4 because somebody wrote it up this way, but what is now chapter 4, the first few verses, this is what Paul writes. Tune in. He says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, and Paul's literally a, a convict in a jail cell, in a Roman jail, because of his following Jesus. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, aka Jesus, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why love disappointing people? I can give you all a dozen plus reasons why not to love disappointing people. Why love disappointing people, Paul? He says, live a life worthy of your calling. We, if you have decided that you are going to follow Jesus, his teachings, his life, and believe that that he is who he said he is, Paul says, live a life worthy of that calling. Jesus is operating in in, in a very specific way, a very specific life. And if you are going to claim that life, live a life worthy of a calling. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to name all of the the, the unity and the oneness that is a part of God and the kingdom and the things that he does. And he's saying, in essence, the way that we relate to each other is not an optional feature of the Christian experience. The way that we relate to one another as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, is not an optional experience. The way that we talk about our faith so often in the 21st century in the church in America, the most important thing we can do in our faith is to be really intimately close with Jesus, right? And so we talk about prayer, we talk about quiet time, we talk about worship, which is a good thing to talk about. We talk about all of this sort of individual spiritual disciplines. And those become really the focus. But Paul is really convinced of this. That the way that we relate to each other as people who follow Jesus together is not an optional feature of the Christian experience. There is nothing about it that can be disposable. He says it is foundational to our life in Jesus. Riddle me this. Riddle me this. Can you love Colorado and hate mountains? I mean, maybe if you're from eastern Colorado and you've never made it far enough to the promised land. But I don't know one decent Coloradan that loves his or her state with a great passion and disdains mountains. Do you? I don't. Or riddle me this. I don't know one environmentally conscious person that goes and burns tires for fun. 
Do you? No, that would be a contradiction of terms. You literally couldn't hold one particular identity and then behave in a totally different and contradictory way. And Paul is saying that you cannot call yourself a follower of Christians and not love other Christians. It is a contradiction of terms. John, a guy who followed Jesus intimately, and who I think, based on his writings, of all the writings we have about Jesus and following Jesus, John seems to be the most in tune with how loving Jesus was and Jesus is. He wrote in a letter, anyone who claims to be in the light, aka a follower of Jesus, but hates a brother or sister, and anytime you see brother or sister in the New Testament, it's almost always talking about believers, fellow followers of, of, um, of Jesus. There's such an intimacy in the way that the, the first followers of Jesus understood um, Christians in community, that they understood themselves to be family, brothers and sisters, okay? So John says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. That person, by definition, is not someone who actually follows Jesus Christ. You cannot have it both ways. Paul says, and John says, loving, disappointing Christians, how can this possibly be done? Paul gives us a few really helpful directives. First, he says, be completely humble and gentle. This is a quote that I found on my Instagram recently. It says this, love difficult people. You're one of them. Let me read that again. This is the most important first step, and I believe this is why Paul, as the first directive he gives us, says, be completely humble. Love difficult people because you're one of them. I would say this, if you are just beginning your journey of thinking or even feeling a conviction that you need to be in a loving relationship with every believer that you know, and yet you are struggling to get there, I would ask this question. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an innocent, perfect, loving person who is the victim of other disappointing people? Or do you also see yourself as someone who is a disappointing person, who hurts other people, and is a part of the cycle? Our relationships will always, always break down if we do not recognize what we bring and the hurt that we bring and the destruction we bring to relationships. The most um, a powerful example in my own life is this. Uh, my wife, Erin, uh, and I have been married for eight years, and uh, it's been an awesome ride. I'm, I, I, it, I love being married to Erin. When we moved to Colorado, our marriage hit a very, very difficult um, season. And a lot of stuff was exposed because we were in a new place outside of our community, and we weren't able to sort of bury ourselves um, in our life that we knew before um, in California. And we were at each other's throats. And it got to a point where my wife said to me, if we continue to do this, we aren't actually married, and we can't actually continue to be married. And I thought, well, my kind of like righteous, judgmental person was like, we're Christians and I'm a pastor and we'll never get divorced, is kind of what I thought. 
But she brought up a really good point. We weren't actually married in the sense that Jesus intended for us. And here's what I realized. We decided we needed help. So we went to this guy, a a really um, powerful mentor for me uh, for several years. And his name was Jim. And Jim met with Aaron and I together exactly twice. And from there on out, Jim never sat down with the three of us for our marital counseling. The rest of the time that we spent together until Jim died of cancer over a year ago, it was just one-on-one with Jim. And marital counseling consisted of me owning my crap, recognizing that I am a disappointing person and that I need to love my wife, a disappointing person, because I'm one of them too. And that was a breakthrough for us. And once I began to actually live this, be completely humble and gentle, things started to change for us. Humility leads us to handling difficult people with gentleness rather than harshness. And once there was compassion for my wife and compassion for me, our marriage changed dramatically. You might be thinking this, is Paul really talking about loving the difficult people that I know? Like, I know some really difficult people, some really difficult Christians. Our friends that were in Cambodia and Vietnam, it sounds like they were with some very difficult people. I probably would have felt the exact same way. Does Paul know how bad these people suck? Paul says this. He says this. He says, as if, to, as if preempting our question, he says, be patient. I know that people are disappointing. I know that people are grating. And so he says, you must learn patience. And beyond that, he says, bear with one another in love. Bearing to me is the most dramatic um, uh, and uh, the most dramatic way that, that we can describe actually taking on the weight of what it means to be in relationship with somebody who is disappointing and hurtful. Um, and, uh, and not loving. And Paul assumes that those will be relationships that we have, that people will be difficult. People will be stubborn. People will, will hurt us and say, um, hurt. I have never heard more hurtful things in my life than those words received by people um, in churches, criticisms towards me. You wouldn't believe a couple of the emails that I've received. You would laugh and then you would cry. You wouldn't believe that someone could write them. And, and, and Paul says this, bear with one another in love. He assumes that you'll need the patience. He assumes that you'll need to tolerate the badness of the relationship. And here's the deal. Paul had it way worse than any of us will ever have it. Paul um, was somebody who was on the leading edge of sharing um, Jesus um, in a world that did not know Jesus. And there was all sorts of roughness around that. Uh, Paul writes about how there were actually other followers of Jesus out there preaching the gospel and, and bad-mouthing Paul because they wanted to be more popular preachers than Paul. And Paul's like, you know what? Whatever. As long as Jesus is being preached, I don't really care what they say about me. But when is enough enough? When is enough enough? Like, where's the line? Where's the line where we can just say, this is a disposable relationship. I'm a Christian. I have more important things to do than to love fellow believers. 
I need to love the lost. And this person is taking up all of my bandwidth. Maybe you have a roommate like that. I had a few. I've had a few. Some might say that I have one that way. Paul says this. He says this. He does not give us a loophole. This is terrifying. If you're already squirming on the inside thinking about specific relationships, here's the coup de grace. He says this. Make every effort. Make every effort to maintain the bond of peace and the spirit of unity. Make every effort. He gives us no loophole. How much is enough? He says, as much as it takes, as much as it takes to be in a relationship, a loving relationship where there's reconciliation and wholeness and trust with fellow believers, as difficult that person is, that's how much, that's how far is enough. It is a myth, it is a myth that, the other, that when the other person is in the wrong, it is not my problem. When the other person is in the wrong, it is not my problem. That is a myth that we buy into all the time, right? I got an email the other day from somebody that I've known since I moved here to Boulder, and they had some very choice words for me, and most of them were around other situations that were loosely connected to me, but some really colorful language was used, etc. And honestly, there's a part of me that's like, you're wrong. Like, I don't know why you're upset, and I might not ever see you again except randomly on Pearl Street. So it's not my problem. But Paul and Jesus and those that knew Jesus well would say, no, 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 it's your problem. It's your problem to reach out and make every effort to bring, to, to, to bring a unity and reconciliation. That is not the ethic of Jesus. If Jesus' ethic was that somebody else is in the wrong and I'm not, then it's not my problem. Then there is no gospel. There is no cross. The entire heart of our gospel, the good news, is that we created the problem. God did not. And he didn't say, well, it's not my fault, so it's not my problem. Quite the opposite. He said, it's not my fault, but it is my problem. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring wholeness and reconciliation and love and redeem this broken relationship that I care so much about. That is who we follow. Not my fault is my problem. That's what Jesus says about himself, and that's what he says to us. Returning static with static always results in more static. Returning disappointment with love is the only possible way of changing the relationship. When is enough enough? Paul says, make every effort. As we conclude, so why go through all the trouble of loving other Christians? Why go through the trouble of loving other Christians? If you know what it takes to love other Christians, you know that it takes a lot of work. That means actually spending time with some of your roommates, perhaps, connecting with people in your core group that are really different than you, that maybe you just don't connect with. It's just awkward when you're, when you're um, one-on-one with them, or on messenger on the other side of the world with a bunch of kooks that don't really get it? Why go through the trouble? Why? There's people dying on the streets that need to know the love of Jesus. Let's go, let's go you know, preach the gospel. Why are we wasting our time with these other Christians that are such idiots? Aren't we about loving those who don't know Jesus? This is what Jesus said. This is in John's gospel. He says this. 
people are going to know actually who I am by this. Not by the way that we preach the gospel. Not by the way that we feed the homeless. Not by the way we invite, you know, every person that, we, that doesn't know Jesus to Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow night. He says, people will know that you are my followers if you love one another. If you love one another. If we do not love one another as a community of believers and followers of Jesus, our love for everything else is counterfeit. Our love for everything else that we claim to have love in, including Jesus, is counterfeit. Because we do not even understand the heart of who Jesus is if we cannot love those around us. Those we call brothers and sisters. Those that we share the same hope and inheritance in. Another way of, I'd say the positive way of looking at that is, uh, of, of the, the, the reality is this. The kingdom of God the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. It's not a, it, it, it's not a, a, a kingdom of, of, of powers and, um, and, and structures. It is a kingdom of relationships. A world that is being reordered by the person of Jesus, what he did on the cross in the resurrection, and how that reshapes every single relationship. The way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, relate to the physical world, to everything. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of relationships. And Jesus is the model, the prototype, and the one that is restoring the way that all of these relationships ought to work. And so the most fundamental relationship for us, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, need to reflect the essence of Jesus and the way he relates to us. And friends, here's the awesome part. Here's the awesome part. If we actually take this seriously, if we actually decided to do the hard work of loving, disappointing Christians around us, we would create, through the strength and the power of the Spirit, Jesus Christ, we would create a community unlike any community that anyone has ever experienced. Does anyone here know of a community where no one is disposable because they're disappointing? But imagine that community. Imagine a place where somebody's social awkwardness or somebody's worst anxieties and fears that that emanate through in the way that you disappoint and break relationships. Imagine a place where, where, um, where, where people can be totally understood for who they are not some sort of like, um, you know, social mirage, you know, about like a status and beauty and wealth, whatever, but a place where people are actually known for who they really are. Loved like Jesus loves. No one is disposable. That community would change the world. And that's the whole point. That's the point of who we are. And so Jesus says, don't go out there and think that it does not matter the way that we treat each other here, the way we love each other here, Because it starts here. It starts the way we love our roommates, our core group, the people we do messenger with. There it is. So friends, if we want to change the world, which I think many of us are interested in doing, if we want to see Jesus change the world, let us start doing what we don't want to do, but need to do, and that is to love 
difficult Christians. Let's pray. Jesus, um, as we hear these words um, from Paul and from you and from John, um, I ask that you would bring to mind um, specific relationships and people that we have been at odds with, perhaps that have walked away from us and we don't feel at fault, but there is fracture in those relationships um, of people that also follow Jesus. Um, uh, maybe it's uh, in, our, in our face, um, they're roommates, they're people we see every Thursday night, um, maybe it's people we haven't seen for a long time. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would speak truth to us about how it is that we need to take steps to be who you have called us to be. Children who are people who live the unity of the Spirit. A love that takes ownership of brokenness, even if it's not our fault. A love that is humble enough to recognize when it is our fault, which often, Lord, it is. And Lord, may we be a community where no one is disposable, that there is not one thing that, that, that could be done that would fracture the love that we have for one another, and that this community, Lord, would change the world because of it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.